Well, I invite you uh, now to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 12, and we'll be looking at uh, the first 19 verses. This is obviously one of the uh, uh, more familiar passages in the book of Acts, as we read about uh, Peter being incarcerated, and then this uh, great escape that he experiences at the hand of God's grace. So our theme uh, from this passage is prayer, the key to unlock prison doors. And I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And again, as always, I remind you, since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened freed me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. And may God bless the reading of His Word. 
Well, I love passages on prayer uh, when we come across them in the Scriptures uh, for several reasons. <clears throat> Number one, uh, these passages are always instructive. They teach us how to pray and they teach us uh, what to pray for. They're also very convicting because uh, if you're like me, you know that you fail in the area of prayer oftentimes. And so it's convicting to study these passages. But thirdly, it's also encouraging because we see that we worship a God who hears and answers our prayers. And this is the great blessing of uh, passages like this. The context is that there is a, a renewal of the persecution. Remember, uh, Stephen had been put to death back in Acts chapter 7. Uh, some of that persecution kind of began to, to wane a little bit. But now King Herod is ramping it up again. And he primarily has the apostles in his crosshairs, the leaders of the church. But of course, in all of this, we see the sovereign hand of God. That God uses these things for expanding His kingdom and accomplishing His will. So we'll see that as we work through it. Now let's begin by looking at uh, the main instigator of this persecution in uh, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Now the Herod that we're looking at here is Herod Agrippa. And notice he's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had four sons, Aristobulus, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, who's the main Herod of the Gospels. Uh, Herod Antipas is the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. Herod Antipas was the one that uh, was a part of the trial and, uh, of the Lord Jesus. So that's Herod Antipas. And then the fourth son was, was Philip. And then Aristobulus had a son, Herod Agrippa. And this is the, the Herod of Acts chapter 12. In fact, he's the, the Herod throughout the book of Acts is Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was, uh, of course, the one who slaughtered all the little baby boys in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. And he died right after that, probably as a judgment of God for the evil that he did. So he died, Herod the Great died around 4 B.C. That's around the time Jesus was born. Uh, right after he died, his, um, his vast kingdom was divided up among uh, three of his sons. You see, Herod Archelaus had Samaria and basically uh, Judea. And then you have Herod Antipas that had the purple areas. And then you had Philip who had that uh, kind of a pinky area up in the, in the upper right. Uh, Archelaus was uh, actually... Uh, uh, wasn't Archelaus, it was... Uh, Aristobulus, the father of King Herod, was actually killed by Herod the Great. He killed his own son. But Agrippa, so he didn't actually inherit part of his, his, uh, his kingdom for, very, uh, for much at all. But the rest of it was dispersed among the other three sons. Now eventually, Herod Agrippa, the grandson, uh, because he was somewhat of a, of a rogue as a young man, 
Uh, he was sent off to Rome for education after his father was killed by his grandfather. And uh, he went off to Rome where he befriended uh, Gaius, who became later on became the Emperor Caligula. And he became uh, emperor in 37 AD. Well, once uh, Caligula became emperor, he elevated his friend Agrippa. So in the year 37 AD, Caligula, the emperor, gave Philip's domain to Agrippa. And then a few years later, in 39 AD, Caligula, the emperor of Rome, also added to Philip's domain the domain of Antipas, and he gave that to Agrippa as well. And then, once Caligula died, the next emperor is Claudius, and Claudius knew Agrippa, and they were buddies also back in Rome. So he expanded Agrippa's kingdom to include that which previously was held by Archelaus. So by the time we get to this point of Acts chapter 12, Agrippa basically is ruling over all the former territory that his grandfather, Herod the Great, ruled over. So obviously Jerusalem here is now in his domain. So he's here presiding, trying to deal with uh, some of the uproar, these Christians and the problems they're causing uh, some of the Jews. Now, the persecution is going to uh, begin again uh, with, uh, with this particular Herod Agrippa. And uh, even though his, his uh, grandfather, Herod the Great, was an Edomian, an Edomite, he was not a Jew, his grandmother was. And so Herod Agrippa utilized that to try to curry favor with the Jews. He was a politician. He was a people pleaser. He was always looking for ways to score points with uh, the Jewish people. And so he decided to ramp up the persecution. So he takes the Apostle James, and we read of this in verse 2, and he puts James, the brother of John, to death with a sword. Now what that meant, basically, this happened in the year 44 A.D. because uh, Agrippa is going to be killed by, he's going to die by worms in the next passage. So this is all in 44 A.D. But uh, he takes the Apostle James and executes him with a sword, which means he was beheaded. Now again, his uncle, Antipas, had beheaded John the Baptist. So this kind of runs in the family, you know, this kind of brutality. So he arrests James, he has him executed with a sword, meaning his head was cut off. And uh, so that, that makes James the first martyr among the apostles. Again, James is the brother of John. They were known as the sons of thunder. You remember, probably in part because they were the ones who, who asked Jesus if Jesus wanted them to call down thunder on the Samaritans and wipe them out. Uh, so they had that kind of a nature. They were also, James and John and Peter were, were among the inner three that Jesus sometimes would take aside and they got to see things the other apostles didn't get to see. They were there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when the, when the others weren't. They were there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So they, they were the inner three. They were the closest to the Lord Jesus. But James, a young man, probably in his 30s, 
was uh, captured by Herod Agrippa and was uh, executed. What a tragedy, we would think. Certainly this, this was a tragedy. Uh, here is a young man in his 30s probably, had incredible potential, an incredible future ministry, and yet in the infinite providence and wisdom of God, his life and ministry were cut short. It's hard to understand this. His brother will live longer than any of the other apostles, John, but James will be the first apostle to die. I think if we learn anything from this, we certainly learn that we're all expendable. Uh, There's none of us who are necessary. That all of us are here as long as our Commander-in-Chief pleases for us to be here. Uh, Christ calls us all to take up our cross daily. And when it's our time to die on that cross, then it's our time. God has numbered our days. And Christ uh, wants our obedience no matter the cost to Him. And I think we have to learn to live even as young people that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven because you don't know how many days you have ahead of you. Uh, That's in the hands of God. But we are fools if we assume we're going to live a long life. We need to live every day as if we are here by the pleasure of our King And He can withdraw that privilege at any moment and I'll be catapulted into eternity forever. And that eternity is either going to be heaven or hell. And if you're wise, even as a young person, you will understand that and live your life each and every day for the glory of Jesus Christ who commands your destiny. James was taken as a young man. Uh, And again, we don't understand why. But we just have to ultimately acknowledge it and bow before that. So when, when uh, Herod Agrippa captured and arrested James, had him killed, the Jews got all excited. They, they said, yeah, do more. Let's do some more of that. So they, they no doubt encouraged Herod. And so in verse 3 it says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. And so we find that he's now going to capture Peter. And we read in, uh, in verse 4 that when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. And so Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Now notice uh, we read here that it's during the days of unleavened bread. Uh, it was illegal to execute anyone during the feast day. So they captured him. They put him in jail. They're holding him there till the day after the feast of unleavened bread was part Passover is concluded. And then they're going to bring him out, do another mock trial, probably like they did with James, and execute Peter. That is the plan, no doubt. So all along, this is what they're doing. You notice in verse verse 4, they put him in prison and he is being uh, held by or or watched over by four squads of soldiers in verse 4. A squad is four soldiers. So a total of 16. And they're probably going in three-hour shifts, day and night. 
And uh, so he's being held probably in the Antonio Tower, which is like a great fortress. Now, here's a picture of the uh, Temple Mount. You can see the, the temple in the center there facing east. And in the northwest corner, this is the Tower of Antonio. This, is, uh, this was built by Herod the Great. It was used by the Jews and by the Roman garrison. Uh, King, the, the Romans had a garrison there of about 600 soldiers. So the, the high priest garments were kept inside there. Uh, the Romans kind of had, you know, they had control even over that. But this is probably where they've taken Peter. This is probably somewhere buried down in there is Peter in his jail. And there's a, a close-up of it. It's a fortress. It's impregnable. And somewhere down in there, probably in the lower parts, I don't know, but uh, that's where Peter is. We learn in this uh, particular section that uh, there were four squads, four men per squad. So on every shift, there were two that were inside the jail cell with him, chained to Peter. Normally, one soldier would be in the jail cell chained to the to whoever the captive is. But in this case, they put two in there and they were both chained to Peter. And then they had two more standing outside the door of the prison cell. So this uh, fortress is like 115 feet tall. It's like 11-story building. And it was a military barracks Again, utilized by both Jews and the Roman soldiers. It's like a maximum security prison. Uh, today, this is where you'd stick Al Capone. You'd stick him in this place. Or maybe El Chapo Guzman. Everybody's familiar with him. Uh, the Mexican drug lord who has repeatedly broke out of prison. Now he's back in prison. This is the kind of place you'd stick him. This is kind of a maximum security prison. Why, why such an overboard with, with Peter? Why so tight the security? Well, James had just been put to death, so their confidence is running high. But you remember back in Acts chapter 5, they had arrested all the apostles and an angel came and rescued all of them out of prison. Maybe that's in the back of their mind. Maybe they're thinking that, you know, these apostles sometimes are like escape artists, you know, like a Houdini. So we got to put him inside this fortress and do a double guard all around him because this guy is not going to leave. But on top of that, they hated Christ. They hated the disciples. And the gospel was turning the Jewish world upside down. And Herod Agrippa did not like that. He did not. He was to keep law and order. So the troublemakers, from their perspective, needed to be dealt with and dealt with severely. So they've locked Peter in one of these jails. So Peter's basically on death row. And after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Breads, he would be executed just like James. So escape, humanly speaking, is impossible. And yet we find there's a great, there's a great battle going on here. On the one side, you have one of the most powerful men in Israel, King Herod, with the power of the sword to execute prisoners. He's got a powerful army to back him up. He's got this incredible, powerful, impregnable fortress in the Tower of Antonio. And inside of that is a jailhouse, and that's where they've locked away Peter. So all the cards are in their favor, obviously. 
But on the other hand, you have these disciples, these humble followers of Jesus Christ with no political power. They don't have the Ten Amendments and a Constitution to protect their, their religious liberty. They have no ability to bring a lawsuit to stop the execution. They have no worldly weapons to fight with, but they had the weapon of prayer to a sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth, who holds all things within His hands, who rules over every atom of the universe that He's made. And not only does He rule and hold all things within His hands, He holds the hands of kings in His hands and moves them and turns them like streams of water in the hands of the Lord. Their weapons actually were superior to Herod's. Paul later on will remind us of this when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So Herod is going to war against the church using a prison. The church is going to war against Herod using prayer. And Herod had set his watch in the jail room and the church was setting their watch in the prayer room. And both sets of guards were being changed out day and night. The guards were rotating in and out. No doubt prayers were coming in and out, rotating throughout the night. But where the guards set by men may fail, the guard who trusts in the Lord can never be defeated. The Lord has taken sides in this battle and Rome will not win. We're told in the Psalms that unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep watch in vain. And regardless of how tight the guard, no matter how vigilant the watch, the Lord is guarding the prisoner and will set him free so that ultimately their efforts will fail. We read in verse 5 that while Peter was in prison, prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So once they heard that Peter was arrested, they probably sent out a prayer request, email. And they all gathered together and they're praying. This is not the regular weekly prayer hour which we do or prayer time that we have on, on Wednesday nights. Valuable, necessary, very much a, a blessing. This is a special prayer meeting. This is uh, basically where they're being called to arms because one of their soldiers had been arrested by the enemy. So without drawing swords, they, they draw the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then with the, the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith, they're engaging in spiritual battle for Peter in the prayer room. I love this word for fervency in verse 5. They're praying fervently to God. This is the very same word that's used of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's, when he's fervently praying that if possible, Father, may this cup pass from Me, but not My will, but Thy will be done. He was fervently praying to the point that His sweat became like drops of blood. This is the same word here. The idea of praying fervently means you're, you're praying not just casually. You're praying with your heart. You're praying with your soul, with your mind. But you're, you're praying and imploring God. You're praying with intensity. You're, you're, you're crying out to God. You're praying fervently. 
Oh God, rescue Peter. They're pouring out their hearts to God. James has just been put to death. One of our leaders. And now Peter. Oh God, don't let them take Peter also. So they're praying fervently. You know, we're told in Scripture that fervency is one of the keys to answered prayer. We're told in James chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. The power of fervency in prayer is oftentimes, I think, overlooked. But Bishop Hall summed up the importance of fervency in prayer well when he said, when he compared it to shooting an arrow. He said, an arrow, if it be drawn but a little way, goes not far. But if it be pulled up to the head, flies swiftly and pierces deep. Thus prayer, if it be only dribbled forth from careless lips, falls at our feet. But fervency of spirit is that which availeth much. You see, fervency indicates to God the depth of our desire in wanting that request answered. It indicates the desire and passion of our heart. If we're just praying as if we're just looking to see the time of day, God's not impressed with that kind of a prayer. And many of our prayers, no doubt the majority of mine are prayed in that sad spirit. But when God stirs us and our hearts are burdened and you begin your prayer with, Oh, Father! And you begin to pray with an intensity because your heart is invested in this. These are the kinds of prayers that the Spirit of God is stirring up within us that oftentimes is a reflection of what God has ordained to be. So don't undermine the importance uh, the importance of fervency in our prayers. And what were they praying for? Well, hopefully they had remembered that an angel had rescued all the all the apostles previously in Acts chapter five. Uh, maybe they had remembered the other occasions when God miraculously rescued His people when He sent an, an angel into Sodom to rescue Lot. When He sent an angel into the the lion's den to rescue Daniel. But all of this, you see, was in the backdrop with the fear that James has already been killed. There's no presumption here that God is going to rescue Peter. We don't know that because James has already died. How do we know that Peter is not going to die also? So with all of this, not knowing God's will, they are praying no doubt earnestly for God to have mercy upon Peter. And then in verses 6-11, through 11, we have this amazing jailbreak. We read in verse 6, that on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. So this is the night. This is the last night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The last night of the overall Passover festival. The next morning, Peter's going to have his mock trial and will be executed, no doubt. So on that very night... At the last hour, so it may seem, 
when Herod was about to bring him out, we find Peter, and what's he doing? Peter is sleeping. Peter, who was chained to two soldiers inside this jail, was sound asleep. Now, everyone was miserable, apparently, but Peter. The two, so how would you like to be chained to a, a, a criminal in your mind in a, in a dark jail cell all night long, or at least for a three-hour shift, and you're chained there to this guy? I mean, do you want to be there? You know, most people would not want to be there. The guy's standing at the door during the middle of the night. You know, they're having to keep themselves awake. I've, I've worked jobs where you have to do the graveyard shift, and it's no fun. I'm sure they didn't want to be there. So no, probably none of the soldiers preferred to be there, but uh, Peter was there and he was sound asleep. He was the only one who, who was comfortable in the situation probably. And then he's, he's snoring. He's probably snoring. Guards at the door are probably thankful. It's keeping them awake. You know, that guy's in there snoring. But Peter was sleeping, no doubt, because he had confidence that he was in the hand of God. He had been rescued before by an angel. He knew his life was safe in God's hands, that his days were numbered, and that nothing could prevail against him until that final day had come. If an angel didn't rescue him this time, or if God didn't deliver him or change Herod's heart, then he was, I think, content to die glorifying Christ. I don't think he was necessarily afraid to die for Christ. I think Peter was a man who teaches us the importance of practicing what we preach. Let all preachers hear this. Later on, Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, he'll exhort his readers to cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. I think at this point, Peter had done that. I think he had probably said his prayers. He had entrusted his life into the hands of God. And then he went to sleep. He had cast all of his cares and all of his burdens on the Lord in whose hand he knew he was. And resting in that peace, he fell asleep. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Peter had prayed. Peter now was sleeping. And God at that point in time then sends one of His special agents, one of His special ops soldiers from heaven, an angel. And we read in verse 7 that behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. So in the middle of the night, this angel appears. This brilliant light just lit up the entirety of this little cell that Peter and these two soldiers are in. And And the angel strikes Peter's side and wake him up. Now, Peter was sound asleep because this word strike is not a little nudge. 
It's not, it's not like what the wives do to us, you know, in the middle of the night when we're snoring and they've got to kind of nudge us to wake us up. This was a strike. This was like a kick in the side. This particular word for strike was used of Moses in another place in Acts where he struck down the Egyptian and killed him. It's also used of Peter striking off the ear of the servant in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest Jesus. This is not a gentle little little nut. He had to strike Peter to try to wake him up. And even then, he was still apparently so groggy, he didn't realize uh, what was happening for a while. And then he tells him to get up, verse 7, and immediately, miraculously, the chains fell off his hands. Verse 8, Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So all this is happening. Peter's not even fully awake at this point because he's not sure if he's still dreaming, seeing a vision. He doesn't really, he's not out of it yet. Kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, seeing a dog, if any of y'all have had dogs and they're, they're lying on the floor and they're sleeping and sometimes you, you see their, their legs like they're running. And have you ever wondered what that dog is dreaming about? You know, probably chasing a cat or something. And, and he's just probably having the time of his life. You know, a beautiful spring day, sun's out. He's chasing this cat, gaining on it. You know, his tongue's out. And, and just thinking, what a, what a pleasant dream. And, and Peter might have been thinking that. You know, he's, he's not, he doesn't know if he's awake or asleep, but man, this is a pleasant dream, you know, that he's having. You know, his chains have fallen off. You know, he's walking past these, these uh, guards. And then we read uh, in verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. Miraculously, the gate opened. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Well, how did all this happen? Well, we don't know for sure. Uh, that cloak that he put on was not a... Uh, 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 an invisible cloak. You know, I don't know how God did it. If, if He put the other soldiers to sleep or whether He blinded it doesn't tell us. But this is obviously one of those miraculous deliverances that angels sometimes accomplish. We know not how. Um, but in all of this, it's, it's kind of a, an interesting picture. James Montgomery Boyce sees that in this rescue of Peter out of prison, that it's a beautiful picture of our deliverance from sin, from the prison of sin that we're in. And he, he quotes uh, Charles Wesley's famous hymn. And listen to this. And this is dealing with our salvation, but, but listen to how, how it seems to parallel Peter's experience here. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Sounds kind of like this experience. Obviously, Peter's not getting saved here. But it is kind of a picture of the miraculous nature of conversion. Uh, But that's overly spiritualizing our our passage. Well, Peter now is... uh, is out. Uh, verse 11, 
when uh, Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. So this is John Mark. This is not John the Apostle, James' brother. This is a different John. And his mother was Mary, where many were gathered together and were praying. So it's now in the middle of the night. Peter is free. He now realizes that he has been set free. That's not a dream. It's not a vision. So he, he makes his way to the home of, of Mary, John Mark's mother. Now she must have been an affluent lady. She probably had a large, spacious home. Again, uh, many, notice many had gathered here in verse 12. And they were praying. This is a special prayer meeting. Is praying throughout the night. Praying for Peter. Uh, because Many had gathered because prayer was a priority. And when God's people unite their hearts and voices in prayer, I think God takes special notice. So Peter you know, goes to a place that was familiar to him. He goes to Mary's house and here's this, this big prayer meeting going on. He may not know that at the time, but he walks up to the gate, starts to knock. <clears throat> Verse 13, when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer But when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And this is one of the humorous things about this. We've all read this and and chuckled that that Rhoda, in her excitement and joy, uh, apparently there's a courtyard out in front of the house and then there's a gate. So they hear someone outside knocking at the gate. So Rhoda goes out of the house, probably was sent there by Mary. She's a servant girl. Goes to the gate. Maybe it had a little window in it or something. She looks through and she sees Peter there. And she's so excited that she leaves him there, doesn't open the door, and runs in and tells everybody. And Peter's probably out there in the middle of the night, in the street, not where you want to be. It's not safe. You know, still knocking, saying, let me in. I want out of this street. And of course, he's, he's abandoned. He's left there by himself. Kind of a humorous, humorous situation. Rhoda comes in and tells the prayers, and they say basically to her that you're delusional. Rhoda, Peter's not out there. We're in, Peter's in prison. That's why we've gathered here, Rhoda. We're praying for Peter. We're praying that God would change Herod's heart. So maybe he'll let him go. You know, quit interrupting us. We're, we're at the heavy, you know, the spiritual warfare going on here. And you're interrupting us. But she kept being persistent. And eventually she persuaded them, well then maybe you're seeing Peter's angel out there. And apparently according to some of the uh, the Jewish Talmud that uh, we have guardian angels that can assume our appearance at times uh, and act as our double. That's not necessarily biblical. That's from the Jewish Talmud. But maybe they had believed something like that. So eventually they go out and sure enough it's Peter there standing in, in real living flesh and blood. I think what we learn from this, I think just about our prayer time, is that sometimes we're, we're very slow to realize when God has answered our prayers. We, don't, we just don't see it. We don't recognize it. Uh, we're too quick to attribute it to natural things instead of seeing the supernatural hand of God involved. I remember reading a story of uh, right after the prohibition 
uh, in the 1930s that a tavern was being built in a town which had been previously dry. And a group of Christians in a church opposed this. And they called for an all-night prayer meeting and they were asking God to intervene. And soon a storm blew up and a lightning bolt hit that building of that tavern and burnt it to the ground. Well, the owner of the tavern filed a lawsuit against the church saying it was responsible. The church hired a lawyer claiming it was not responsible. So at the trial, the judge said, no matter how this comes out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer and the Christians do not. (laughs) So I think sometimes we, we pray to God and God answers it but we don't understand the nature of the answer and so we don't give Him the glory because maybe He didn't answer it exactly the way we were praying. And so we didn't recognize because we had it in our mind, God, answer it this way. And God answered it, but He answered it that way and we didn't recognize it. And so we don't acknowledge that in fact He has answered our prayer. You see, God oftentimes answers our prayers in unexpected ways. They were not expecting for an angel to come and deliver Peter out of jail in the middle of the night. They were probably praying, Oh God, turn Herod's heart so that he lets Peter go. That's probably or something like that. They were not anticipating this. And God answered it in a way that they certainly didn't expect. They should have because of the activity of angels in other places, even in Acts. But apparently they didn't. I think we have to be careful that we don't put God in a box by limiting Him in how we pray. Sometimes we we want God to do something and it just seems like this is the way to do it. And we need to be... It's okay to pray that way, but just be mindful that He can answer that prayer any way that He wants to in any fashion that He so desires. He's able to answer your prayer or deal with your problems and your troubles in a way that maybe you don't anticipate. For example, man may pray for a strong body to serve God with, but God may enable him to serve him better with a body of weakness, for it keeps him humble and dependent and more heavenly minded. Did God answer his prayer? Yes. His desire was to serve God more effectively but not the way He wanted God to answer it, but a way that accomplished ultimately the aim of the man's heart's desire. I think we need to be uh, quick to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Paul wanted to go and preach the Gospel to the Rome, Rome and visit the Romans. He got there, but not the way he envisioned. He got there as a prisoner not under his own uh, time of ministry. Nahum wanted to be cleansed of his leprosy by the prophet Elisha pronouncing some word upon him and miraculously healing him. God did heal Naaman, but he had to go and dip himself in the muddy Jordan River seven times. Joseph's dream was that he would be exalted over his brothers and even over his parents. But the path to get to the throne of Egypt led through the dungeon for Joseph as well. In all these ways, we learn that God says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so we still need to acknowledge 
the importance of praying fervently, but to know that God may answer it in many different ways, not what we want, not, not necessarily the way we expected it, but ultimately accomplishing what's best and for His glory. And on top of that, yes, God can still use angels today. They are not an extinct species. They're still alive and well. 15, 20 years ago, the church was all in a craze over angels. You know, all the series, everything was on angels. Well, that we can overdo it on angels, but we can certainly underdo it on angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Angels are still very much a part of God's world, accomplishing God's will. And some of that involves in bringing about answers to our prayers. Uh, one of my favorite examples was uh, in the autobiography by John Patton. If you've never read that, I encourage you to read that. It's a phenomenal read. Uh, John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands that had been infested with cannibals. Uh, previously, two missionaries landed on, these, on an island in the New Hebrides in 1839 to bring the gospel to them. And once they got out of their boats, within minutes, they were immediately killed and eaten by the cannibals on the shore of the island that they landed on. Nineteen years later, in the year 1858, John Patton and his new wife land on the island of Tana. And his autobiography is full of a incredible deliverances and rescues by Almighty God. One night, while he and his wife were in their little house that they built, their little hut, hostile cannibal natives surrounded their home intent on burning down the house and killing them. And John Patton and his wife were terror-filled and they spent the night praying to God and calling out to God to deliver them. The next morning, they looked out the window once it began to be daylight and they noticed that unaccountably all the, the natives and the attackers had left. And they thanked God for the deliverance. About a, a year later, the chief of that tribe was converted miraculously to Jesus Christ. And John Patton, remembering what had happened like the year before, came to the chief and asked him why they, what kept them from burning down the house and killing them. And the chief replied in surprise, who were all those men you had there with you? And the missionary answered, well, there were no men there, just my wife and I. And the chief argued that they had seen hundreds of of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands standing all the way around their house and they were too afraid to attack. And obviously, uh, these would have been angels sent by God to protect them in a very supernatural way. God can still send angels to intervene today. Let us not in any way try to draw back God's hand. He is sovereign over all things, including even the angels and the demons for that matter. Well, in verse 17, they finally let Peter in. He comes in. Verse 17, he motions to them with his hand to be silent. 
and he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. This is not James that had just been executed previously. This is now James, the half-brother of Jesus. The James who will become a leader in the church of Jerusalem. The James who will write the book of James in the New Testament. That James. Not the Apostle James. And he says, go and let them know. And then, uh, and then Peter, Peter skedaddles. Goes to another place uh, to, to escape uh, being caught again. In verse 18, there's a great disturbance, obviously, the next morning. Herod examines all the guards. He orders them to be executed because if you failed as a guard, you would receive the same punishment of the person you let escape. So they were all executed. And again, uh, what we learn from this, of course, is uh, that uh, God is certainly not unjust. They are sinners. And uh, even though God rescued Peter, they're held accountable. It's a tough lesson, but that's, that's the way it is. God is just. In conclusion, and wrapping this up, there's several uh, things I want to point out. First thing again is just that God's ways are often mysterious to us. There's a balance here between James and Peter. Why did James die? Why did Peter live? They're both apostles. Both are incredibly gifted. They have incredible potential for future ministries. One is rescued. One is martyred. Just don't understand these things. Uh, But God has ordained that some glorify Him by their life. And God has ordained that others glorify Him by their death. Proverbs 20 verse 24 says, A man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Many of God's choicest saints have died as young men. David Brainerd, Jim Elliott, Robert Murray McShane, all around 30, many, many more. We just can't understand in the providence of God. And what we can't understand with our minds, we just have to humbly bow with our hearts and acknowledge it and knows that in God's ways, His ways are always best. Secondly, we need to learn from this passage that our greatest weapon against the arsenal of the world's weapons aimed at us is always prayer. Thomas Watson said quite uh, eloquently, it was the angel who fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel out of heaven. And I think oftentimes when we come up against opposition within our world and our circumstances, we're so quick to run to man-made solutions instead of realizing that prayer should always be our first weapon of choice. Prayer is a means of grace that God utilizes to accomplish His foreordained will. Now God controls everything in the world. Every blade of grass. God is in sovereign control over everything. You say that, well, Alan, if that's true, then why do we even need to pray? Why do we need to evangelize? Because though God has commanded us to evangelize and God has commanded us to, to pray, prayer is a means by which He uses to accomplish His foreordained events. So don't undermine the responsibility. James tells us you do not have because you do not ask. We need to be asking God. 
And it's okay to pray for the protection of the church against ungodly governments. One of the good work we've mentioned, Voice of Martyrs. They do a tremendous great work in ministering and helping the saints of God being persecuted around the world. It's okay, like the church here, to pray for God to rescue His people when they get arrested and thrown in prison. And leave it into God's hand to do what what God seems best. But we're to pray for kings and all who are in authority over us so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We need to be praying that our government would honor our religious liberty so we would have the freedom to preach and teach the Scriptures and not be thrown in jail and uh, incarcerated or put to death. It's it's, uh, biblical to pray for these things for sure. But also we, we know that it's the night before Peter's going to be executed. And that sometimes God waits to the very last moment to answer our prayer to save or rescue His people. You may not be at that last moment in your particular trial or situation yet. But sometimes God waits to the very last. In the darkest, bleakest hour when it seems like the worst is about to happen. And then God may intervene right at that point in time. God moves at His own timing. Sometimes it may be early. Sometimes it may be late. But just know that God's timing is always best. And finally, prayer in this particular passage is the key to open the prison door. God did it through the angel, but prayer was the means of opening that prison door. I don't know if any of y'all are in a tower of Antonio today. Maybe because of circumstances in your life. Maybe because of trials. Maybe because of health issues. Financial issues. Troubles that come from one way or another that seem to have you in a straitjacket. Seem to have you confined in a cell. Your freedom seems to be taken away from you. What circumstances are you in today? Whatever they are, we need to know that prayer can move the hand of God to set you free. Remember though that James was not delivered. There's no guarantee that God is going to answer your prayer in the way that you want it answered. Sometimes prison is right where we need to be. Uh, Paul will eventually spend two years in prison in Caesarea and two more years in prison in Rome and then be released and then back in prison again and then executed by Nero Caesar. Sometimes prison is where we need to be. Sometimes prison is what's best for us. And whatever circumstances have surrounded your life, whatever it is that's, that's attacking you and putting you and confining you, these are things to pray about. God can set you free. But if He chooses not to set you free, there's a better reason in His sovereign goodness for why He is leaving you in that situation. But again, He may change it tomorrow. But sometimes God will open those doors and He'll open a way of escape. He'll show us a a, a new path to go or He'll answer the problems that we're dealing with. And yet ultimately, as balancing Peter's escape and James' execution, we always need to pray with a submissive heart like Jesus Himself. Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from Me, but not My will, but Thy will be done. And then you're praying biblically. 
You see, nothing is impossible for our God. Jesus was not defeated when He was crucified. Remember, He had rebuked Peter at His own arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter had pulled out his sword and chopped off the ear. And Jesus rebuked him by saying that He could appeal to His Father at any time and His Father would send Him twelve legions of angels to come to His aid. There were 6,000 soldiers in a legion, so that's 72,000 angels the Father could send and put at Jesus' disposal. No, He was not defeated. His plan was not frustrated. It was God's plan being carried out that took Him to the cross. But what we learn from this is that nothing is impossible for our God. There's no force or opposition standing against you that He cannot topple like a house of cards. There's no prison door so tightly slammed shut against you that He cannot cause to open on its own and reverse the circumstances. There's no amount of chains or armed guards weighing you down, confining you, that He cannot immediately cause to to drop and fall away from your arms. As Jesus said to the arresting mob of the Roman soldiers, who came out to rescue him, he said, I am. And at that mere, small, brief exposure of his glory, they all fell back on their faces. No, they were not victorious. They were accomplishing God's sovereign will. Jesus voluntarily gave himself to them. And so my brothers and sisters, if you find yourself like Peter in a prison cell, you know you have the right to pray for a God who commands the prisons and can open the door. And you need to pray in faith and confidence that whether He opens that door now or later or never, that God's ways are always best and that there's always a purpose that will be good for you and ultimately for His honor and glory. Well, God rescued Peter. And prayer is often the means by which God unlocks our prison doors today. Let that encourage us, I pray. Well, let's, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for this uh, encouraging passage to see how You responded to the prayers of God's people when they came together praying fervently that, Lord, You heard those prayers and You answered them in a way that, that pr- protected Peter, but brought You much glory so that the church could profit under the ministry of the Apostle Peter for many years to come. Lord, thank You that You hear our prayers. And Lord, for any that are here today that are hurting and have circumstances that are like a fortress Lord, give them grace in praying in faith to pray fervently, to know that You can rescue them, but to pray with humility, knowing, Lord, that Your ways are often inscrutable. They're beyond our comprehension, but they're always best. And give us that confidence as well. Thank You for the privilege of prayer. May we learn to be on our knees more often and with more fervency in the days to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.